Okay, so this talk, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about climate change, but we're also going to talk about um, psychology and how your brain makes decisions and where that connects in with um, some of the challenges we face with climate change. Um, our One Book, One College program is on the book All We Can Save, which talks about how we build sustainable communities, issues around climate change, issues around um, climate change and social justice. So um, come in the library, check that out, and keep an eye out for our ongoing events. We have a number of events coming up uh, this semester. Um, to begin with, I just want to talk about um, climate change and lay out some of the evidence underlying climate change, um, because we don't often do that maybe as succinctly as we could, and then think about how our brain processes this evidence. So first off, I want to note um, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, from um, uh, the United Nations, this is an important quote that just came out a couple of years ago, every bit of warming matters. Um, if we hit the point of 1.5 degrees centigrade, um, the, the risks that they have on our planet are long lasting and are probably irreversible and that's kind of the mark that the scientists are watching we do not want to see 1.5 degrees um, of warming happen and we keep inching up inching up inching up the thing about climate change is the mechanisms of climate change and um, how like especially like the greenhouse effect works um, is not something that is new it has been around for a long time, stretching back into the 1800s, where the theories and pieces that fall together about how the Earth's atmosphere holds in warming from the sun, all of this has been assembled over, you know, over 150 years. And so it seems as if sometimes climate change gets cast as this new thing that just showed up in like, you know, the 1990s or 1980s, and it's still sort of um, on loose footing. But really, there have been key steps along the way that have, have locked together um, into a larger theory that's pretty well understood and is pretty well and it's pretty solid. And I'm not going to go through all of this and read it all, um, but I just wanted to, but just as a visualization, that um, going back for you know since 1824, the pieces of the greenhouse effect of warming um, have been locking together. And so when we think about climate change and what do we look for to understand climate change, there's a couple things that I'd like us to consider. First off, what do we measure? What are the things that we're measuring um, to note how the climate could be warming? And then number two, if, you know, if this was true, if the climate was warming, if climate change was happening, what kind of things would we expect to see as it unfolds? All right. So, so number one. The key thing is um, atmospheric um, carbon dioxide, and really there's a whole list of greenhouse gases, but carbon dioxide is number one, also methane is up there. Um, you know, we've, we've marked back in time, uh, about 400,000 years we can measure CO2 levels, and we are seeing increases in CO2 like we've um, never seen before. And then along with that, we can also measure and correlate the increase in average temperature, um, surface temperature, so we're seeing um, it's step up, step up, step up uh, since, you know, as long as we have recorded history. And you can really start to see by the 1960s how this jump really goes on. Um, you know, the, the, the warmest 10 years ever recorded or, or warmest, the 10 warmest years um, have been within like the last decade or so, right? Um, so again, what would we expect to see if the Earth was warming? Clearly warming temperatures and we keep seeing step up, step up, step up. Along with that is also warming oceans, which is almost more um, more troublesome because if the you know the the oceans are the foundation of almost all of our ecosystems and our weather, 
And so if, if we see warming oceans, it's really going to cause, um, you know, ripple effects around the world. Um, the top 700 meters, about 2,300 feet, um, we're seeing increases of 0 0.302 degrees, which is quite a bit when you consider um, the size that we're dealing with, um, with, with the oceans, right? Um, if we were, we would also want to look at other sources. So, so the thing is, is like, we say, scientists say, if I was going to disprove climate change, where could I look? Where could I look to get data that would show me something different? And the thing is, everywhere we go, like they look at tree ring growth and they can correlate that with other, um, you know, like the, the ice core, like what are the, the data on our planet that can tell us about how it looked in the past and everywhere we go, we um, see not information that makes us change our theory, but information that actually confirms our theory, which is sort of where, why the momentum gets going. Is like every time we try to think of a new way to say, is climate change really happening? Um, the data that we look at makes us um, change our minds. So if climate change was happening, what are the expectations that we would see? And that's number one, um, shrinking sea ice. Um, well, I, sorry, this is on land, sorry, um, ice sheets. So everywhere we look, the sheets of ice, especially at the North Pole and South Pole, are dropping quite a bit, right? Like there's, they're losing um, billions of tons uh, over over years. So Greenland, especially right now, is really um, warming, and we're seeing um, sheets that have been solid for, for centuries are disappearing. Um, now the Arctic sea ice, so ice that is out there on the oceans, um, is vanishing. Uh, glaciers. So if you want to go to Glacier National Park, you better go soon or there's not going to be any glaciers left. And that's, maybe that's a little exaggeration, but um, not so much. Um, if we look around the world at major glaciers, they are not as thick. They are Their reach is, is going back. Um, they are, there's clear signs of, of decay of these glaciers. Um, and then we're seeing, you know, sea level rise um, all around. I think this is kind of a funny picture. Um, Florida is already almost in the ocean. So, you know, again, go to go to Disney while you can, because it may soon be oceanfront uh, property. Um, and, you know, this is this has huge impacts is that we are seeing increasingly severe weather events. And so some of these are events that would happen anyway. But when you add climate change on top, um, it starts to, you know, um, exaggerate the impact of those events. So especially like we saw the wildfires across Australia, we're seeing major storms that hit like Texas and the East Coast, um, wildfires in California. Uh, it's just, uh, there's the recent tornadoes that have ripped across the Midwest. Um, weather events that are sizes and scope that we um, are not accustomed to. This is a chart, might be hard to see, but a chart from um, from the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of scientists from the United Nations, scientists around the world who issue reports kind of waving the red flag saying, you know, we need to take action, we need to address climate change. And they've made some predictions um, on how warming will happen and what we can do. And basically their predictions, and this is, um, this is from 2018, so this isn't exactly brand new anymore. Um, their predictions are saying, look, warming is happening. Like the, the question that we have now is not so much, um, can we stop warming? Because we can't, it, there's too much um, CO2 in the atmosphere to do that. The question becomes, um, can we flatten the curve and can we mitigate what kind of warming is happening and what kind of peak do we wanna see on this warming as it moves forward? 
the thing is, is that there are groups around the world who are thinking about and taking actions to address climate change. This is not just some UN scientists or some people at university and colleges that are um, that are taking action. We're seeing um, groups across across the economy and across the world from um, government organizations like NASA, the EPA, the Department of Defense has climate change, um, you know, climate change um, initiatives in place to try to prepare for uh, potential risks due to climate change. We're seeing it from the National Weather Service, the National um, Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft, um, big banks, they're all taking action and preparing. Um, we're seeing um, other groups like the American Medical Association, um, unions like SCIU are all, um, are all thinking about and calling for us to address and deal with the impact of climate change. And I could, I mean, literally, I could do 45 slides of groups that are um, commenting and preparing and recognizing climate change. And there's some debates on how great some of these, you know, maybe not everyone's quite perfect on it, but there's sort of like this inherent nod from these groups like, yeah, this is happening and we need to be ready and think about it. So the big picture with this, with this part is that the evidence for climate change is not new and it's well understood. The mechanics are understood better. We understand climate change better than we understand things like gravity, right? But we don't have big debates about gravity. Um, we're seeing the, the predictions are locking in place with how the models work. So we're seeing weather events um, scaling up as predicted. We're seeing sea level rise as predicted. We're seeing temperature rise. All of these predictions that we would expect to see if the theory is accurate is staying in place. And if we try to disprove the theory, everywhere we look for evidence that could disprove it, we tend to find things that support it. So with all that being said, why are we not taking action to address it? And this is sort of some of the things I want to get to, right? Um, there's some complexities behind it. So every time we've had, in the United States especially, um, legislation to take on climate change, um, or even like the EPA issued guidelines um, to regulate CO2, there is pushback on it. There's pushback politically and legislation is being blocked. Um, famously, President Trump um, took actions to remove the United States from the Paris Climate Accord, which is an agreement of countries to reduce CO2 emissions, tried to pull us out of that. Um, there's there's a there's a, a there's groups of people who are worried about the short-term costs that that making changes to climate change will have, um, even though there's clearly long-term gain in addressing climate change. And I and this is what I want to get to is why. So why? Is there, um, number one, climate denial? Why do people not accept that climate change is happening? And then number two, why is there action um, to step in the way when legislation and other activities could be, could be put in place? And so um, this is my thesis. This is my point that I want you to, I hope, remember and walk away from, is that the obstacles to addressing climate change are actually, right, not scientific obstacles. Um, they are political and they are personal. They are about understanding information and um, they are based in the different ways we see our world. They're based in belief and worldview because when we deal with information, um, information is personal. As we read something, interact with something, there is a personal element to all of it where we have to integrate that information into how we see the world. And that is really what I want to talk about. So we're gonna shift gears here for a second and talk about that, and then we're going to come back to climate change um, at the end. So I want to 
dive in a little bit to the nature of belief. And I just want to real quick. All right. Sorry. Um, nature of belief. So I want to start with this question. And this is this question is a little more fun if we were all in person and we could talk about it. But question is this. Um, highly intelligent women often marry less intelligent partners. And the question is why? Why is this true? And I'll tell you it is true. Um, and so why? I'll give you a second to think about this. So when I ask this in classes, um, it normally leads to some fun conversation. This is a fun question, by the way, to ask, um, you know, when you're at parties with friends after a few drinks. But normally I hear um, answers such as, um, you know, they're, they're threatened um, by intelligent people, so they don't want to marry other intelligent people, or um, intelligent men don't want to, you know, marry intelligent women. Um, something along those lines where people show up and they want to, they, they really want to, um, they want to read into this question, something about gender. And the, the reality is there's a reality is that all highly intelligent people, no matter man, man, woman, other, um, uh, non-gender binary, non-binary, right? No matter who you are, highly intelligent people on average will marry less intelligent partners and this is really a math question about averages just because there's not enough highly intelligent people to go around people are distributed around the planet they aren't all together and so on average highly intelligent people overall marry less intelligent partners but when we see this question it activates in us um, different kinds of biases. We all show up. Um, I could have asked this question in all different ways. I could have asked it as just highly intelligent people um, marry less intelligent partners, right? But by asking it with the word um, women in there, it charges the question and gets us thinking down another track um, that our brain takes us down. And so the thing to think about with how we interpret information is we like to think of our brains as this like data processing machine that we're taking in the world, we're analyzing it accurately, and we're coming to these conclusions, right? But um, that's not the way our brains work. Our brains really filter the world coming into us based on our past experiences. So reasoning is highly social. Reasoning and thinking are locked into where we are in our lives, the experiences we've had in the past. And our brains are actually pretty lazy. Our brains are a very, very um, expensive organ. They use up a large share of the energy that our body takes in. and so. To be efficient, we actually don't think in a lot of detail about most things that come our way. If there's an easy explanation, we run with that easy explanation. Um, and that's partly because we're built that way evolutionarily or we would never move forward in our days if we had to do like a big data analysis of every little thing um, that comes at us. So um, when we have a decision to make or we see a piece of information, a lot of the, the ways that we see it just come from our gut, what feels right. We run with that idea and go down that path. Um, I, this is just a fun image um, from a, a professor of psychology in Japan. Um, this is the image, it, when you look at it, it feels like there's motion happening, um, but it's not really moving. Everything is staying still, um, but it plays with your eyes because your, your brain is actually constructing the world around us. You actually don't see every little piece um, of the world that you think you see. Um, our, our eyes actually only focus on a very small portion of what's in front of us, and our brain actually constructs everything else. And that's how we work with the world in general, is that our brain is constructing the world around us, what we think is going to happen 
largely influences what we see around us. And there's there's hundreds and hundreds um, of psychological studies that are super fun, um, if you're interested, that that show us how our brain constructs reality around us. So let's let's um, shift gears one more time and think about reasoning. So maybe we think, you know, why don't we why aren't we better at reasoning? Like why can't logic just just take us um, down the path, especially with something like climate change? Why can't we take the data and just make these great decisions? And the thing with reason and reasoning is that. Um, it it evolved in humans and all primates really, but especially in humans um, within the group, and that we are we um, are like our brains rely on other people to help us think. We are actually really bad thinking isolated alone, like in a in a computer, like in our bedroom on a computer. That's a bad setup um, for us. Um, uh, reasoning evolved as a group tool. Um, for people to interact and share decisions. And, you know, for most of the existence of humans, a vast majority of our existence, we actually lived in small tribal groups that with a hot, with high levels of trust, where we could um, share ideas and debate and figure out how we survive. And that, um, that really centers on group cohesion, holding us together is more important than hitting the right answer. And, and what happens is that we are actually really, really good at telling other people why they're wrong. This is this is sort of a irony of how we think. We're actually really good at seeing why other people's um, reasoning is is poor and seeing holes in their reasoning. And we're actually really really bad at doing the same thing with ourselves. And so that's why if you're in small groups of people, we they actually perform better than any individual will in decision making, um, especially given the right kinds of circumstances. Which is a a whole other talk. Um, but I think the big takeaway is our kind of Western idea that we can just take some logic and that we can just think through and find an answer isn't really how most of our um, reasoning abilities have evolved over, you know, 300,000 years of human existence on Earth. Um, this is a, a quote from um, some psychologists. Uh, they say the main role of logic in reasoning, uh, we suggest, may well be a rhetorical one. So they, they see our reasoning as partly rhetoric. Logic helps simplify and schematize intuitive arguments, highlighting and often exaggerating their force. So let me just unpack that for a second. So what they're saying here is that in these groups, we try to use logic and reasoning to argue with other people. And when that those other people also use logic and reasoning, that's where we try to sift out and find the best arguments, but that our arguments actually start at an intuitive level. They're kind of like gut level arguments that we throw out there. Like the job of each of us in a little group that we that would be like our partners to survive is for all of us to just throw ideas out. And then the group argues about those ideas and finds the best idea to go forward. Now, of course, we don't live in small little groups anymore. We live, um, you know, with billions of people around the world sharing loosely across the internet, across text messaging, across all different kinds of ways that we share. And so, in some ways, this reasoning that's evolved and has been very effective for us um, is kind of dismantled by how we share information today. And we need to address um, some of that as we work um, to to do better in in making decisions. So this brings us to the real big factor that especially connects in with in with climate change. So, you know, here's a quote from former President Trump. This is from 2018. 
Um, he's talking about climate change in this in this quote. I think something's happening. Something's changing, and it'll change back. I don't think it's a hoax, but there's probably a difference. But I don't know that it's man-made. So he's saying climate change is not man-made. I will say this. I don't want to give trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't want to lose millions and millions of jobs. I don't want to be put at a disadvantage. And so he's making the argument that, hey, maybe there's climate change, but I don't think humans are causing it. And, hey, let's not spend money on it. And then, of course, there's the other side, also from 2018, Al Gore, uh, who is former vice president um, and has become a climate activist, says um, the scientists not only predicted these consequences, talking about the consequences of climate change, um, they're telling us that we're going to get a lot worse um, until we stop using the Earth's atmosphere as an open sewer. And the, the, the thing we get into, right, is that we have two groups, two, uh, two uh, constituencies who people identify with, and it doesn't become about actually figuring out is climate change happening or not. It becomes about winning. I'm a Republican. I want to win. I'm a Democrat. I want to win. And that's that becomes the battle, right? And this is the thing in psychology called um, identity protective cognition. And this is Dan um, Kahan from Yale. Tendency to selectively credit and discredit evidence in patterns that reflect people's commitments to competing cultural groups. So, you know, think about, you know, you got your Cubs fans, you got your Sox fans, and we're going to argue about who's the best team. But let's argue about the future of the earth based on whatever, you know, jersey we happen to be wearing, Republican or Democrat. And that's what it comes down to. Um, this is a major impact. And if you, you know, you look at how this ex exaggerates out, right, there are whole media systems that, again, aren't as interested in finding truth. And, and I don't want to, I definitely don't want to knock on media because there's a lot of really good um, journalists and writers who are out there doing good work on climate change. Um, but there's also a whole industry that doesn't really care and they just want attention and they want your clicks and they want your eyeballs. Um, I mean, frankly, with climate change, Fox News is leading the way in pumping out questionable stuff. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot that we don't know about climate change still that, that we could talk about, um, but that this, but, you know, Fox News and many others definitely misrepresents the scientific consensus on it, right? And so they're looking to, they're competing for viewers, they're basing themselves in identity, they're working to confuse the, inf the, the, the issue, and there's a big push um, with uh, misinformation. And Fox News is not alone, there are others who are out there playing um, in this game. If we take this map, um, this is voting districts um, in the in the 2020 presidential election. So the the blue districts tend to be where there's more people, um, bigger populations, by the way. But those districts that went Democratic, the red are congressional districts that went uh, Republican. And if you can make some interesting comparisons, this is a, a little rough, but you'll see what I'm talking about. So here's belief in climate change. If you overlay those two maps, so here's the congressional districts again. Notice where the blue parts are, especially look at like Chicago. And uh, you can see like Madison, Wisconsin. You can see down where Houston is in Texas, see where New York is. You overlay it and they they line up pretty closely. This is from a survey done by Yale, um, where people live who actually believe in climate change versus people who discount it, right? Definitely a connection with political identity and how you see climate change. Um, you can extend this, by the way. This is people, this is vaccination rates based on data from Harvard. 
Um, it's not quite the same, but it's pretty close. People that are getting vaccinated um, for COVID against COVID-19, the COVID vaccines, um, also tend to line up along those same political identities. And this is one where when you extrapolate it further out, um, this is a little more messy, but this is from the New York Times. You can see here's deaths um, by COVID-19, and it lines up pretty closely. Um, it's inverse. The, the, the areas that were empty, um, that, that didn't have as much belief in climate change, also didn't have the vaccination rates, um, are also places where there's more deaths um, by county, in this case, um, from COVID. So, uh, and again, there's a little blurriness to some of this. This is a, a broad a broad brush, but I think the data really shows like how identity impacts how we live our lives, right? The, the choices we make, the views we have, how we align ourselves, there's a big connection with identity and how we act and vote um, out in the world. So let's try to pull um, some of this together and I'm trying to watch um, time. So, so, you know, what does this stuff mean? So I think we have to be really aware of how our country's polarizing and also how the information that we consume um, is also polarized. Uh, we are trapped increasingly in communities of belief. And unfortunately, those beliefs, uh, th those communities don't really talk to each other. We're, we're talking across each other, um, not with each other. And we're getting to a point where, where people are unwilling to compromise and to try to find middle ground. And I think the, the biggest problem, especially, um, and this is some of the stuff that Kevin will talk about, uh, it has talked about in, in some of his events that are coming up is that, you know, as we make congressional districts that are that are more gerrymandered and are more Republican or Democrat, they're more polarized, you get leaders that benefit from not compromising. I want to show that I'm a true believer in whatever party. Um, they don't benefit from actually finding common ground and passing legislation that can make changes. And that's something we should think about. And that comes back to how our how we process information, how we see our identity, and how our brains filter our world around us. Um, so these are some of, this is what I would call the mechanics of skepticism, right? Um, two key things, um, defensive avoidance and selective exposure. And so defensive avoidance would be, you know, if there's someone that disagrees with me, I'm not even going to listen to them. I'm going to avoid their information. If I'm skeptical about climate change and there's someone on campus speaking about climate change, I'm not even going to bother to show up and listen. I'm not going to pick up the article that might help me see something different. Um, selective exposure is similar where um, instead of just avoiding it, um, selective exposure um, does a similar kind of thing, but I'm only going to find things that agree with me. So I'm only going to read the things that I already agree with and use those things in my arguments instead of having a bigger picture view of how things um, might work. And this works both ways. So, you know, hearing both sides is is important. So I don't want to, in climate change, obviously I have a stance on climate change, um, but there are issues where all of us fall, um, fall victim to this and we all should be defensive against this. So um, another key piece that we need to recognize is that to know something is not a rational, logical, mechanical thing where everything just clicks together, right? To know something is really a feeling. So how do you know it's right? You just gotta feel that it, it feels right at your gut. Now, sometimes you can have an argument and it changes your mind, but still when your mind changes, you feel that something is right. Um, and when you when you feel that something isn't quite right, you also feel that too. So if, if someone's trying to fool you 
and you don't quite know why it's kind of from that gut feeling again where you're like uh, i don't know i can't tell you that you're wrong but there's something sketchy going on um that you're fooling me with so so like when i asked that question about why um highly intelligent women marry less intelligent partners um some of you might not have known the answer to that but some of you might have had that gut feeling like uh, this dude is playing with me a little bit. Like I, there's got to be some reason he's asking me this. And maybe you don't know why, but your your feeling of knowledge is telling you not to trust that person. Kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm watching this. So um, in the in the psychological terms, this is called an affective state or affect. So it's kind of the the um, feeling side of knowing things, the, the the mental sensations that come with thinking. It's not just that um it's not just that we are all logic computers but that there's a feeling around everything um, that we do that helps us navigate our world which is good it's important because that's really effective in how we how we make decisions um so again just to bring some of this down the big picture so information is personal when you have a belief it's connected into who you are. It's built on the experiences and the people that you share ideas with and your existing beliefs filter the world for you. And in, in some ways, there's no way around that. Um, I don't know how else it would work where you have to guess about what is important. We're always predicting. So um, if I say something to you like, the sound of my voice is ringing in your knows no the, the sound of my voice is ringing in your ears and when i said the sound of my voice is ringing your brain probably filled in the filled in the blank with ears right and ringing in your ears it wouldn't make sense any other way so our brain is always anticipating and thinking and filtering the world around us and that's just a simple um word example so that the thing that i worry about is that we are falling into a skeptical abyss where because I can I can find anything out there on the internet, whatever, um, or because the world is so polarized and one side says this and one side says that, but the easy thing to do is just to say, I don't know what's true. I don't want to know what's true. I'm, I'm not even going to try. And that we all just step away from trying to work together to solve problems and to think deeply about issues. And I think that is a thing that should concern all of us, no matter what side of the political divide you fall on, is we have to find a way to seek compromises and move forward as a society um, to make decisions. So what can we do? So here's some thoughts to send your way. Well, and don't worry, we will eventually get back to the climate change stuff. Um, there is a theory in philosophy for our philosophers who are out there called correspondence theory. And that is just simply to say that whatever is the truth must reflect on external reality. So if I can measure a thing out in the world and, and um, compare that measurement, that helps me get to the truth. Um, and that, and there's some complexities around some of that, um, but I do think that's a useful idea to think about, that truth is out there and we can try to find it. So like, for, for instance, these two questions, is climate change happening and is climate change caused by humans? Now, those are questions that have answers and it doesn't really matter what you believe is true, that there is a true answer out there and we can seek that answer in data and try to compare it and do our best to see what the external world actually looks like and connect it in with these questions, right? So that's something that we can do. Um, but in order to do that, we have to be fair about how to move forward. And, and really it starts with us being reflective. 
Do you know your own biases? Can you be self-aware about how you see the world? And can you take actions that help step outside of that worldview? Um, this is the diversity wheel. Um, going back to uh, Loden and, and Rosner from 1991. Um, this is actually used most often in groups to talk about diversity and to help um, individuals see the different aspects of their identities and think about how those aspects of their identities um, impact who they are. But I also think this is super useful in thinking about how we see the world. So things like age and our physical abilities, our gender, our race, our, our ethnicity, um, our political alignment, our education, um, our socioeconomic status, all of those things impact how we see the world and the interests we have and how the future unfolds. And so when we come into contact with something like, you know, like climate change, if I own a lot of stock in, you know, you know, Exxon or some oil company, right? Um, and I know I'm going to lose a lot of money if those companies go out of business. That is going to impact maybe how I see that information. And I should try to be self-aware of that. Um, and I should try to check that bias that I might carry with me. That's that's just kind of maybe a basic example. But um, being self-reflective and knowing um, our own biases, I think, is, is step um, number one. So uh, when you have that feeling of knowledge, I know that this is true. You should ask yourself, how do I know that? What are the things that are pushing me um, to be so certain? What influences me? And again, can I see the biases that I hold? And that's a tough one. This is very difficult to do. Um, along with that, uh, this is from um, a, a scholar uh, or from a writer, Brian Resnick, is just the idea of intellectual humility. And I think this is really the foundation of what scholarship in really a college education to me um, should be about. Uh, also, oh, sorry, I, I cited the article by Resnick, but Mark Leary from Duke um, also advocates and came up with this. But this is just the basic idea that um, the things you believe in might be wrong and that we need to be willing to change our mind. And that is really the core of what science is, is that if we have a theory and we that explains how something works, if we find better data that changes that theory, we change it and we, we follow the new data. And um, we need to be ready um, to do that. So that's also letting go of some of the certainty that we might have. When you are in an argument, so maybe someone posts something online or you get a text message, whenever you encounter information that gives you a strong feeling, something that makes you really happy, something that makes you angry, something that makes you, um, you know, prideful, you know, whatever, that emotion should be a signal to you to step back and check it, right? So to think like a fact checker is a big thing. This is from a, a scholar, Mike Caulfield. Um, he's like a media scholar. He's really great. Um, and he has a, a guide online um, for how to be a student fact checker to not fall for misinformation. And so if there's if there's information that, that emotionally activates you, you should think about why am I emotionally activated? Am I emotional? Am I getting emotional because I'm now in that argumentative state where I want my team to win? Um, what is that thing? And this gets back, this is connected with checking biases. What is giving me these emotions over this information source? And can I calm myself and try to turn off that emotional brain and intervene with my more rational, logical brain? I mean, that's difficult to do, but the recognition of strong emotions is definitely a step along the way. Um, as we're out searching and looking for information, 
Um, the the idea idea of motivated reasoning, and and so when you sit down, if you're angry about something, you're gonna I'm gonna prove my point. I'm gonna find this information. Most of the time, we go to Google. We sit down or do a search, and we are way more likely to search for evidence that supports our view than we are to search for evidence that might change our minds. And in some ways, we should do both. But we normally what normally what do we do? We find the information that confirms what we already think. And then we use that in our argument. We go out and we argue and say, look, this article says this, as opposed to really trying to understand the bigger picture. What does this article say? What does that article say? Jumping between sources, confirming and disconfirming. So this is um, uh, called motivated reasoning, where we are motivated to, to think one way and we find information to support it. One great um, tool that we teach here in our library is called lateral reading. And this is really actually pretty simple, where if you find an article or, or any information source, um, you should search for information about that source. And ironically, even though Wikipedia gets a hard time sometimes, starting with Wikipedia, if you find an article on, you know, like Fox News, look up what Wikipedia says about Fox News. You, you find an article about any any source, about the New York Times. Who's the New York Times? How do I know this? Look up the author's name. Look up. So you're not checking the the facts within the article itself. You're check you're checking the larger credibility of the source that you're reading. And you can there's other pieces too too. You can check the facts. Uh, but this is how fact checkers work. Fact checkers are really excellent at finding misinformation and finding sketchy sources that are really that are really um, you know not really trustworthy. And one of their tools is this lateral reading. So it's not reading deeply within the article. It's reading laterally across a bunch of articles to get a broader view. So don't just rely on one thing. Rely on a on a range of sources. Um, and just ultimately, uh, you do not reason well by yourself, locked away on your phone. The best thinking is done with other people, and especially two things, people that you trust, but also people that think differently than you think, so that you hear more ideas and that you can argue out together. And the challenge that I think, one of the challenges we have with our society is that trust is getting undermined and that we do not trust each other to have open and honest conversations, and those are things um, that we need that we need to get to. But if you are alone in an argument, you're not doing it right. Find other people, talk things through, listen to other ideas. So let's bring this all back. Okay, that's been a whole lot of stuff in a short amount of time. Let's bring some of this back to climate change. So I do think um, making different making the difference over time with climate change starts with all of us independently. And this is where. Um, uh, yes, I, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. If you don't know the Michael Jackson song, man in the mirror, you need to go out and Google that. Um, if you know, if you haven't really examined the evidence, get yourself to the evidence and read broadly about it. And what I would really like to do is say, here's the like, I think climate change is happening. I've looked at the evidence. To me, it's very convincing. And I would like to just tell you, you have to believe it. Here's what you have to do. But the reality is, it's stronger if you explore this on your own and I have to trust you that you're going to go out and look at what's out there and see how this argument has evolved over time. And you have to make your own rational decisions and step away from your own biases and beliefs. So that's that's step one is you've got to look at the evidence and see what it is and try to understand where the debates are. Um, it is really difficult to change the minds that are locked in. So the climate deniers, 
to be perfectly honest, most of them, you're, we're not going to change all of their minds. The people in the middle that aren't quite sure, those are the people that um, I feel like these kind of discussions help reach. Um, but in, importantly, we need to think about how can we build communities that are built on these ideals of using data and making good decisions that are freeing ourselves of the biases that we might come with and, and that we can argue ideas and find the best ideas. And ultimately, how can we support compromise? How can we find ways to find middle ground to make progress because time really is ticking away on climate change? And I wish I had a better way to end this, that there's some magic solution um, to help us think better and to do better. But um, unfortunately, uh, there is not. The, the, we, this is one of those thinking processes that really is going to take time and argument and and encouraging people to explore the evidence for themselves and to be self-reflective about where they're coming from and their own their own biases. So um, we are done a few minutes early. I will look. I'm just going to check. I have not been doing a good job checking the chat and the Q&A. Um, if there's any questions, you can throw them in the chat box or in the Q&A. I will wait a second. I just want to say thank you, everyone who's stuck with and who is still here. And I hope you are awake. And if there are no questions, we can wrap things up. This I did record this, and we'll be sharing it off the library's YouTube channel, um, so we can you can you know if you're you want to share with other people, definitely uh, feel free uh, to do that. I want to remind everybody about. Um, uh, uh, Kevin Avertil's talk about misinformation and, um, you know, pol politics and policy and elections, which is March 9th at 11 a.m. And you can find a link to that on the library website. We will have a series of other events on um, our One Book, One College program focused on climate change. You can find that on the library website also. So seeing no questions, I will wrap things up. All right. Thank you so much. I hope everyone has a good day and a good week. Thank you so much for coming. Bye.